China will soon host the 2008 Summer Olympics. China has a rather tumultuous history of relationships with foreigners, as you're probably aware. But the authorities are very anxious to prove to the world that China is a prosperous and welcoming land. The Beijing municipal government is, however, running into a little bit of a problem. Namely, the pervasive habit of Beijing residents to spit in public. What is more, Beijing shopkeepers are known for their rude treatment of customers, sarcasm, fits of rage and impatience, arrogance, rudeness. I guess the shopkeepers are even known to actually grab customers in order to influence a sale. And worried how such behavior will be viewed by foreigners, particularly by Westerners who aren't used to being treated that way, the authorities are cracking down and devising laws to change this kind of behavior. An anonymous critic of the government's efforts writes in China, quote, This is ridiculous. No matter what rules you pass, Beijingers remain Beijingers. Indeed, how naturally outward conformity to behavioral standards is thwarted by inner propensities. This tendency has far graver consequences than spitting Beijingers. 1933, to illustrate, 34 men signed the first Humanist Manifesto, casting vision and setting guidelines to achieve peace and goodwill on earth through human effort alone. There was some notice of God and some hope that he would help and intervene, but at the end of the day, it was man in his goodness that would win. 1933. Beware at all of world history. You know that in just six years after that very optimistic document, the world superpowers started spitting at one another. And the world tumbled into a catastrophic world war. Following World War II, millions more died at the hand of murderous regimes, all vainly attempting to establish laws that would make people behave for their own good. Rules that synchronize very well with the manifesto's vision of economic utopia. So four decades later, after all of this bloodshed and death and destruction, four decades later, a second Humanist Manifesto was signed by 21 Nobel laureates. It began with these very telling words, and I quote, It is 40 years since Humanist Manifesto 1, 1933, appeared. Events since then make that earlier statement seem far too optimistic. Nazism has shown the depths of brutality of which humanity is capable. Other totalitarian regimes have suppressed human rights without ending poverty. Science has sometimes brought evil as well as good. Recent decades have shown that inhumane wars can be made in the name of peace. The beginnings of police states, even in democratic societies, widespread government espionage and other abuses of power by military, political and industrial elites, and the continuance of unyielding racism all present a different and difficult social outlook. 
understood than was presented in 1933. But the manifesto dutifully plows forward and says this, as we approach the 21st century, however, an affirmative and hopeful vision is needed. And it spells out another set of visionary laws that are just as misguided as the first manifesto. The rationale seems to be that if we keep tweaking the recipe and massaging the blueprint, we're going to perfect a way of creating a magical kingdom of unending peace and prosperity, relying on ourselves alone. But the problem is, Beijingers are Beijingers. The problem is that sinners are sinners. And not until we grasp the reality of the corruption of the human soul will we ever touch reality on a global scale or on a personal level. It is as if the world is a car whose engine has seized. And the social scientists spend all of their efforts putting in motor oil. Draining it out, buying another brand, and pouring that in the engine, believing this time it's going to work. This time the car will start. But they just keep pouring in one version of oil after another, and the problem is they have an engine that has to be replaced. The biblical vision of reality assures us dependence on human nature will never work. Sinners are sinners, and only as we address the inner corruption are we going to begin to broker in reality. So we return today to a consideration of the reality of sin which informs our response to it. We must start in all of this endeavor by knowing where sin came from and by knowing what it is. We looked at that last week. Historically, sin was initiated in the cosmos by the angel Lucifer, who in a self-idolatrous rebellion against God, fell into corruption. We then looked at the genesis of sin on earth as Adam and Eve were brought into that rebellion through the temptation of Satan, joined it, and then defined what sin is. Sin is any act, attitude, or disposition fueled by the love of something other than God and evidenced by a failure to conform to the moral law of God which reflects His nature. It is, to draw from the words again of Erickson, failing to let God be God. But we now come today to another question that is important to carry this forward. How pervasive is this sin? We, we learn where it came from. We learn what it is, a breaking of the law of God through idolatrous dependence on other things. But how pervasive does sin affect the human condition? Your answer to this question has profound implications for the orientation of your life, and it has profound implications for the way in which you battle sin. We'll consider, first of all, the breadth of human sinfulness, or what theologians refer to as original sin, not dealing with just Adam's sin, but original sin in the sense that we are born in sin. 
But under that heading of the breadth of human sinfulness, how many people does it touch? We could say it that way. We say, first of all, that every human being sins. Every human being sins. The Bible does not skirt around this theme. You don't need to tease it out of the Bible by drawing subtle inferences from a couple of passages. Numerous are the explicit statements concerning the breadth of sin. 1 Kings 8 and verse 46, there is no one who does not sin. Ecclesiastes 7.20, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Isaiah 53 and verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What does it mean to go astray? Iniquity. All have gone astray beyond the explicit statements of the Old Testament that all are sinners. Old Testament narratives reveal that even godly people sin. And this is an interesting track on it all, but think of Genesis 6 where Noah is described as, quote, a righteous man blameless in his generation. Yet Noah gets drunk in chapter 9. Abraham is counted righteous by God, Genesis 15 and verse 6. But where do we find him in chapter 12? We find him lying and not trusting God. And in chapter 16, again, an act of faithlessness in God. Job is described as, and I quote again, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Job 1 and verse 8. Yet Job eventually charges God with injustice and in the end must pray these words, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. 42.6. King David was a man after God's own heart, yet committed adultery and murder. Now this is really an amazing thing when you consider it. The Bible elevates these men as righteous, and you might think it would conveniently avoid narrating their sins. It does not. These men were not righteous because they sinned. Obviously, we can't go to their account and say, well, they sinned and they were righteous, therefore I can sin and God will declare me righteous too. That's obviously not the point of it. They were righteous because they repented and God forgave their sins. But isn't it striking that the Bible presents these heroes of the faith as genuine sinners? Everyone sins. Explicit statement and the examples of those that the Bible declares righteous. Now let me ask you, as we consider this theme in a world that's very bent against it, where would you turn in the Bible to support the idea that all have sinned? We could draw from these specific passages, the passage in Ecclesiastes or Job or something you may not think of readily, but where would you go? Could you point someone to the text of Scripture that proves that all have sinned? I think the classic text is Romans 3, and I encourage you to turn there. We need to become very aware of these passages and be able to marshal them well. We won't sit down in this long at all, but just to mention it and to be aware of it and to know that it is in Romans 3 that we find very clear teaching concerning the breadth of sin, the extent of it. Everyone is a sinner. Romans 3 and verse 10 declares, as it is written, Romans 3.10, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. 
Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Everyone is a sinner. That is, everyone fails to let God be God. Everyone violates His law and stands condemned before the bar of our holy Creator and Judge. This passage goes beyond simply noting that all have sinned. It speaks to the depths of sin that marks the human condition, but we will take that matter up in due course. So there's more to it than that we all trip up once in a while. By getting out of line with God's law, every human being sins. But I would add to that, secondly, that every human being is a sinner. You might think, well, that's just saying the same thing two ways. Everyone sins and every human being is a sinner. I don't mean it in that way. I mean something more when I say every human being is a sinner. We're speaking now of nature, that it covers all at all times. There are those in history who have said that it does not, that we are not sinners by nature. That, I think, would directly affect the breadth of sin, for it would say that there are some who do not actually sin. Now, that seems to be in direct conflict with what these texts teach, but it doesn't stop some teachers to go around it anyway and to reason through it rationally. But the Bible doesn't allow this at all. Not only does it make it very clear that every human being sins, but that every human being is a sinner. The classic text on this is Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. If you'll turn there, Romans 5 and verse 12. We find in this verse the historical explanation as to why every human being sins. We sin because we possess a fundamental, fatal bent to disobey God's word which we have inherited from Adam. Verse 12, Therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. This demands on the face of it that you believe that Adam was a real person, which many people who claim to be Christians do not believe. They dismiss the first chapters of Genesis as non-historical, and that has a direct influence upon how you see yourself and how you deal with sin. Jesus believed Adam was a real person. And I think it's quite safe for us to do the same. He was a real person, and we need to know that that his life has something to do with ours very directly. Let's work our way through this. The verse starts with the word therefore, which I think contextually probably refers back to the theme of the believer's certainty of eternal salvation in Christ, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, this whole assurance of salvation is based on what Christ has done. And it's based upon the need for Christ to do it. Therefore, just as sin, now when you read just as, you're looking for a so also. But Paul, as is his characteristic, interrupts himself here over and over again. And you don't get to the so as uh, down until verse 18. Or so also. But so the just as trips us up a little bit because he doesn't get to the so also till verse 18. But it keeps us on course when we get to verse 18. Just as sin came into the world through one man. Who's the one man? The one man is clearly Adam. 
Genesis 3. God created Adam sinless when he chose to violate God's law. Adam introduced sin into the world. Further, the introduction of sin brought with it the punishment of death and death through sin. So the, Adam is the historical entry point of human sin into the human story. And through his sin comes death. The wages of sin is physical and spiritual death. No one, Paul makes clear, escapes the reign of death because no one escapes the power of sin, Douglas Moo has written. And so death spread to all men like a disease Adam's sin corrupted us all. Our relationship with Adam as humanity's head renders us innately predisposed to sin. Sin holds power over us in this world. We find that next phrase, because all sinned. And this has caused all kinds of confusion as to what it means, but many would take it as we all die because we all sin. But that doesn't seem to be the argument at all that is here It's true, we do die because we sin, but sin, you'll notice here, is in the past tense. Not we all die because we are sinners or we keep sinning, but rather we all die because we sinned. And there's a connection directly to Adam. It seems to point to a corporate solidarity. We all sinned in Adam. Or as 1 Corinthians 15.22 puts it, for in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now hang in there. As the believer is rescued from death and sin by dying and rising with Christ, so in some type of similar sense, we fell in sin in Adam. I can't explain that to you. I don't understand precisely how that works. And believe me, there's all kinds of theological debate trying to untie that knot. But in some mysterious way, Adam's act of sin was our act of sin in him. I don't believe that it's a matter that we suffer for Adam's sin through no fault of our own. He, as our father, sinned, and we just get the mud that flew from the event. Paul seems to be saying here, rather, that we have sinned in Adam. We participated in it in some way. Now, there are a number of implications along the way, aren't there? The first is we just stop and consider the universality of sin and its establishment here in these texts. I think there's a word for us on social engineering. It's very easy for us in a world that does not believe in sin to get drawn into and perhaps even excited about certain schemes and plans that people come up with to fix the world. But I think with a biblical worldview, although we don't want to become cynical of people who under common grace are striving to make improvements, I mean, if I went to the Summer Olympics this year, I'd really kind of be thankful that somebody was trying to get people to quit spitting and that I might go into a shop and not be accosted physically to buy uh, some item in some shop. But it's not going to fix the problem. And as Christians, though we don't want to get cynical and we don't want to miss the presence of common grace, we also don't want to buy into all of the solutions. The world suggests ideas of ways in which we can overcome our weaknesses and our societal problems, and we as Christians need to stand back and say, is this plan dealing with sin? Does it treat people as sinners? 
And I'll tell you, the vast majority of ideas that are coming down the pipe are just really not based upon the concept that people are sinners. That everyone sins, that we are connected to sin innately in Adam. It's just not operating off that base, and we need to be very aware of that. I think as well, I'd like to just encourage as we move more toward our own world, there are many of us, and I think for good reason, that listen to preachers and teachers and read books outside of this context and outside of this assembly. As you do that, can you demonstrate very pointedly and specifically that the preacher, teacher, or writer that you're hearing truly believes that man is inherently sinful? There are many preachers on the radio particularly, many books indeed that are being written. You could pull that theme out. Now, they would say they believe it. They would say, I believe that everyone is a sinner. But if you pulled that theme out of their teachings, nothing would change. Because there really is not a conscious moving from the concept of original sin in the way that they develop their theology. Be very cautious of that. Now, I don't think there's any advantage to finding somebody who's just mean and nasty all the time and telling everybody how worthless they are. That's not the message Jesus brought at all, is it? But Jesus dealt with sin. He knew everyone was a sinner. He knew that sin pertained to all of us in our very nature. Know that what you're listening to believes that same thing and demonstrates it in the outflow of its instruction. Let me move out there then to the world itself as believers as we enter this world as those who proclaim the gospel of Christ. We are not faithfully proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ if we do not expose inherent sin. We are doing no one a favor to share the truth of Christ's saving grace without first explaining that it is absolutely essential because we are lost and hopeless and under the condemnation of God. I think we do need to be gracious and thoughtful and cautious in the way that we present that truth. But there are many who present the gospel where it is all simply an improvement on the life that you have. That's all that's presented. And when people come to embrace the salvation that Jesus offers and they are thinking in terms that I'm a pretty good person and this is going to help me become a little better person, they're just as lost as when they started. We cannot be saved until we know that we are lost. Otherwise, we are just plugging Jesus in a self-improvement program. I think we should always speak to people about their sin with a broken heart, not with a condemning long finger that points it in their face. But we have got to speak this truth, or the gospel has not been preached faithfully. Now, you can go pretty light, I think, when there's someone who is absolutely indicating evidence that they know that they're nothing but a dirty, rotten sinner. We don't have to beat them down any farther if they're ready for it. But there are churches that are very critical that a church such as ours is not growing by tens and twenties and thirties and fifties and hundreds indeed every year seeing new people saved in, in the terms of hundreds of people. 
Well, we can find ways of coming up with professions of faith, but if we are adding people to the assembly who are not seeing themselves as sinners, I ask the question in these other churches, are people genuinely being saved? Are they simply self-improving through Jesus? I mean, Jesus is a pretty neat guy. You know, when you look at it from an unbeliever's standpoint, if he's not causing you any troubles, I mean, why not tag into his teachings he liked poor people, and he took care of people who were suffering, and he, he just said some neat stuff. Do we understand that Jesus puts his finger right on our heart and says, you are lost in your sin? You are corrupt in Adam. And as you are in Adam, you must come through faith to be in Christ for your salvation. There's no other way. If we're not proclaiming that truth, we're not proclaiming the truth. This affects so many areas. It affects how we look at the world. It affects how we read biblical information that comes to us from many angles. It affects the way that we proclaim the gospel. It affects the way we look at ourselves. And let me bend toward that with the next point. We ask the question of how bent are we? We know that in our nature we are sinners. Every one of us has sinned. But how, not only universal is that, but to what depth does it go? We look at the breadth of sin. It covers all people. But what about the depth of human sinfulness? Or what theologians refer to as total depravity. The Bible teaches that not only does everyone sin, but sin naturally corrupts our entire being. We see this in Genesis 6, 5, where the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. As you would find a text that would indicate that all have sinned, where would you go to indicate that all are depraved, that our sin runs deep? What would be a classic text? I think Ephesians chapter 2 is perhaps one of the best. Let's turn there, and we'll land on this for a brief time. Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Ephesians 2 and verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now he's talking to believers here and he's looking to their past life and says there was a time when you were dead in transgressions and sins. Trespasses and sins. Sin is not a small issue that just crops up from time to time. But you were dead in it. You walked in it. Verse 2, you followed the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Sin is not limited to occasional moral indiscretions. Sin is a realm of death in which we are submerged. Consider a car that's going down a road, there's a flash flood, and water begins to pour across the road, and this car plunges down into a deep river and is submerged in the water. You're in this car. You are, in that moment, in a sense, dead in the water. As long as you're submerged in that water, you're really not going to live to speak of. I mean, you're awake. You're aware of your situation. You're filled with panic, but you're not doing anything. You're not going out to eat that night. You're not thinking about taking a nap. You're not going to balance your checkbook. You're not going to talk to the kids about something you've been meaning to talk about. You're not going to plan a vacation. You are dead in the water. You are submerged in sin. It's an illustration for us of our natural condition. We are dead in sin. It doesn't mean we're lifeless and we have no consciousness. But what it means is the only thing that will provide us life is to get out of the car. is to get out of this state of sin. 
We're dead in the water. And we then walk according to the course of the world. That is, our whole environment is sin. The Greek, according to the age of the world, speaking of the temporary period of time in which the rebellion of sin holds sway on earth. As Titus 3.3 says it, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. We were under the influence, it says here in verse 2, of the prince of the power of the air. Speaking of Satan, and we then become sons of disobedience because we listen to his solicitation to rebel against God. The world is under the influence of Satan who appeals to the flesh in overwhelming ways. Satan tirelessly presses his agenda and the natural man responds willingly to disobey God's word. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We see how deep it goes here. The mind is corrupted. The desires of the body are corrupted. And we are then by nature the children of God's anger. Right from our very birth, no matter who we were, no matter who you are, we're either now plunged in sin or we once were. And I encourage you, those who were saved at an early age in life, there is a tendency among us. In fact, Jesus even spoke of the normality of this. Who rejoices more in the forgiveness, the one that's been forgiven much or the one that's been forgiven little? Now, on one level, we understand that. Those that come, out, come to salvation in Christ as adults, there's a lot to be thankful for because they look at the depravity of that they lived in. But let us also see the other side of that coin. Every one of us lived in that way. You weren't partially lost at some point in time from your birth and on. We were entirely plunged in depravity. We were born by nature. We were in sin. We were identified with Adam. We were in rebellion against God. And you may not have lived long enough to really get into that rebellion. Praise God. That's His mercy. But it didn't take any less grace to save you. And we need, as those who were saved in our youth, to come back to that truth that it took a work of God to save us and to draw us out of our depravity. When you spend your time reading and listening to people, perhaps even in a church somewhere, where all that is ever spoken of is just the good things, you lose sight of the wonder of your salvation. The wonder of our salvation is that Jesus died for us while we were in our sin. We were all separated from him. Go to chapter 4 and verse 17. 417 of Ephesians, which says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That's the sinful state. David said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me. Not her sin, in his sin. He was conceived in sin. 
It goes to the very depths of our being and to the very beginning of our history on earth. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Isaiah 64 and verse 6 says, We have all become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. If we had the time, we could continue on here to consider the entire being is corrupted with specific statements of Scripture concerning the body, concerning the mind, concerning the passions, concerning the will. Now, as we consider the idea of total depravity, there should be some qualifications. Let me just insert a few here quickly. But there is common grace. Total depravity does not mean sinners are as bad as they could be. That they always choose what is wrong over what is right. It doesn't mean that they engage in every form of sin. It does not mean that they have no consciousness of sin. Romans chapter 2 and verse 14 and 15. Romans 2 verses 14 and 15 says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. Romans 2.15 They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So there's a consciousness of right and wrong in the lives of those who are dead in sin. Something similar to the awareness of the person that's submerged under the water in a car. There's an awareness there. Now that consciousness of sin on the part of the unbeliever is twisted, it's ill-informed, it's incomplete, it's incapable of choosing right for right reasons, but there is some sense that something's not right and that other things are right. So writes Erickson, the doctrine of total depravity teaches that we are totally unable to do genuinely meritorious works sufficient to qualify for God's favor. Indeed, we are in our nature bent against it. Well, you know, this makes us all religious addicts, you realize. I mean, we've got a, a real neurosis going on here to think on these kinds of negative things about people. That is what our world would accuse us of. It is a seriously troubling picture of the condition of the natural human heart. But you can continue to pour all the motor oil you want into a seized engine, and it is never going to start. We need a new engine. And when you have to come to the reality that we need a new engine, you've got to come to that reality. Human beings are predisposed to violate the law of God in an idolatrous way, every last one of us. We are not sinners because we occasionally sin. We sin because at the depths of our being we are sinners. We do not sin because God's laws are unfair or unknowable or merely restrictive. We sin because we are fundamentally bent away from whatever God says. Some time ago, I found myself on a flight with a man who had grown up in a strict Jewish home. He was heading to Minneapolis on business, and he asked me to point him to the hottest nightclubs in town. We were clearly strangers. 
He should have asked me about nuclear physics. I could have talked more knowledgeably, but I just gave him a dumb look, and I think he figured out pretty quickly we weren't on the same page. But we conversed, and he began to talk about the faith of his youth and poked fun at it. In fact, he declared that he had decoded the Jewish faith. Obviously, he had no more time for it any longer, but he had decoded it. He said, you can decode it too. Let me ask you, what's the most tasty meat? I didn't come up with the right answer. I wasn't sure what he was looking for, but I, I like all kinds of meat. What he, oh, he said, come on, you know, it's pork. It's ham. That's the tastiest meat there is. God knows that's the tastiest meat. He says, you can't have pork. And I have a feeling his plans for the nightclubs that night, there's probably other laws of God. He planned to just say, that's all there is to it. God just knows what's fun and doesn't want you to do it. He had it all figured out. He didn't have it figured out at all. I think the truth of the matter is, had God said in his word, do not lick bird droppings off of windshields on the car, we'd be out there giving it a try. We just see there has to be something to it that's enjoyable, or why would God say no? Whatever he would say, we'd be bent against it. That's our nature, because we want to rule. We want our way. We want to be God, and we don't want to let God be God. And as long as he can tell me, you're not going to do that, or you must do this, I'm going to be bent against it. Because I'm a sinner. Unless something happens. Unless I come out of the realm of death and enter into the realm of life. At which place God's law begins to be my hope and my joy. In Erickson's theology, he writes of Langdon Gilkey, who wrote the book Shangton Compound. In 1966, he was a Yale graduate. I think 1966 is when he wrote it. He's a Yale graduate. His father was the dean of Rockefeller Chapel at the University of Chicago. Now, if you know anything about these names and these places in that time period, you're dealing with self-righteous liberals. They denied the salvation in Christ, but they prided themselves in being the best neighbors on the planet. They were good people in comparison with others. And he grew up in that culture. And he said, I never saw anything about this idea that people are by nature sinners. But through a series of events, Gilkey found himself confined to a Japanese prison camp during World War II. He was put in charge of the camp with a lot of people that were very much like him, that had grown up in privilege. And in that camp... All these people knowing, growing up with civility and charity and graciousness and caring for others. In that camp, food was very rare. Clothing was not sufficient. Space was at a premium. And Langdon saw a whole nother side of the human heart. And it radically changed his views. He saw self-centeredness, self-autonomy, self-promotion, smallness of soul everywhere he looked. You know, many times the only thing that keeps us from all of that is just the external blessings that we enjoy. 
The freedoms are there. The wealth is there. The security is there. And we're pretty nice people. But strip away these props and the soul shows its teeth and starts to spit. Understanding all of this about the human nature should radically affect the way that we see life. It should affect the way that we consider entertainment, the pursuit of pleasure, how we set future goals and nurture dreams, who we know and how those relationships progress. When we seek self-improvement, we need in all of these areas to be well aware of our inherent sinfulness and of the inherent sinfulness of this world. And for those of you who may be here this morning who do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, I think the case has been made that we are sinners. If you run from this, it will be like you're talking on a cell phone in a car that's submerged in the river. You've got to come to terms with reality. You've got to be rescued from your sin. And Jesus Christ alone can do that. There's a reason why this day isn't a day of great depression. There's a reason why we gather here and sing songs of contrition, but also songs of joy. The reason is when you quit pouring the motor oil through the dead engine and you realize a new engine can be given to you by God Himself, you have reasons to celebrate that you once were a dead engine, but now you're alive. We could look at sin in the wrong way and just make it a matter of discouragement. But indeed, it is not a matter of discouragement. It is the way that we came to know who Jesus is. I don't have any problem considering my sinfulness because my engine's alive. God, through His Spirit, has cleansed me of my sin. And I can rejoice in that and know that there is a home in eternity that my sin has been dealt with, and though I continue to battle it, it's been conquered. The battle's been won, and there is a day when I can enter into the presence of God forgiven. If you don't think you need that, you are wrong. Come out of the delusion. Realize who we are as people, and come to God for saving grace. Now, I know that'll be ridiculed, Indeed, the Humanist Manifesto, too, acknowledged that the 1933 Manifesto held to, I quote, a prayer-hearing God who was assumed to live and care for persons to hear and understand their prayers and to be able to do something about them. Well, in 40 years, they had grown up. And these more enlightened signers spoke of that vision of 33 as, quote, an unproved and outmoded faith and accused their predecessors as, quote, diverting people with false hopes. I tell you, when the Holy Spirit comes and cleanses you of sin, and He replaces rebellion in your heart with a love for God, that cannot be quenched. You'll never call that a false hope. You'll call that joy. 
But where are they? They got a dead engine. And here's the motor oil they're pouring through it now. I quote, human beings are responsible for what we are or will become. No deity will save us. We must save ourselves. That is precisely what we cannot do. Knowing who we are, that is a message that is damning. We cannot save ourselves. We need to be rescued. And Jesus Christ came to this earth to do just that. To live sinlessly because he was God. And to die bearing the sinner's sin as a genuine man. The God-man dying the penalty of our sin so that we might be given his righteousness. In Adam, we die. But joined by faith in what Jesus Christ has done to die for our sin and to rise from the dead, we are in Christ. And once in Christ, we're alive. And we will never, ever die. We must see our sin so that we can see our Savior and so that we can live forever. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, I pray if there is anyone among us who has not come to genuine saving faith, who has not been regenerated, who has not come to realize that sin is to be hated and that Christ is to be loved I ask God that you would show them that they're dead in sin. They're dead in the water. I pray, God, that you would open their eyes to see the message of Christ crucified and risen. I plead in their behalf that you would open their eyes. For those of us who know you as Savior, help us to sing with joy that will never, ever be quenched. And help us to run from sin as we see the beauty and the joy of walking in fellowship with you through Christ I pray amen